You're listening to episode number 117 of the Leading While Green podcast. I'm your host, Pierre Quinn, and my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I am joined by William Putsis, author of the book, The Carrot and the Stick, Leveraging Strategic Control for Growth. Now, before we jump into the conversation with Dr. Putsis, just want to thank you for all of your support of the Leading Wild Green podcast, your reviews on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, your shares on social media, your your emails of support uh, to Pierre at PRCQuinn.com. Everything that you have been doing to support this miss- mission of being more effective leaders has been greatly appreciated. And I know we've all had to pivot. Uh, recently, I gained my my virtual speaker certification from eSpeakers because you know, the traveling that I was doing, uh, doing conferences and workshops and trainings uh, because of COVID-19 got shut down. So we had to pivot and everyone's making all of this, these adjustments. And we're finding out that there's just some people out there who who struggle with muting their mic on Zoom or having their camera set up correctly. So I got my virtual speaker certification so I could serve audiences uh, from from my home to your place uh, wherever your team is gathering online. So really excited about that. Uh, had a couple of virtual speaking engagements already that went really, really well, talking about some concepts of leadership, many of which that I've already shared on the podcast. So looking looking for more opportunities to do that and to serve serve leaders and teams. So if you're in need of a virtual training on the topics of leadership, courage, communication, and life balance. Let's talk, especially for my my emerging leaders, or if you lead emerging leaders, and this is their first real uh, crisis that they've had to deal with in their work experience. Let's talk about how we can put together a program for for them. Now, not too long ago, I, I held a conference, a virtual summit, uh, the Next Step Summit, and I want to thank you for all of your support for that. It was an amazing event that we had uh, together. And many of you know, if you listen to the podcast regularly, that my background before uh, full time speaking and training and coaching, I spent years uh, as a college instructor of communication courses. But I also spent time in congregational ministry as a local church pastor. And I know that there are leaders of faith, both inside and outside of the church that listen to the podcast and who are trying to make adjustments as well. And, we're, and I'm doing a, a, a leadership a leadership summit a four-day leadership conference, and this is specifically for leaders of faith, leaders of faith-based organizations or leaders of faith that work both inside of churches and faith communities and outside of churches and communities, and really that wrestle with or, or they take their faith to work with them and look to be leaders of faith in places outside of the church. Uh, so we're, we're, ho- we're holding a, a four-day event called the Uncharted conference because all of us are in uncharted waters right now. Uh, maybe you're saying, you know, I don't really do the church thing. I don't really do the religion thing. Uh, that, that, that's okay. There's, there is, you're, we are welcome to join us for this event, but, but the, the focus is on people who, who are called to lead uh, with their faith. So it's the uncharted conference. It's June 2nd through 5th. And you can check out more information at unchartedconference.online. That's unchartedconference.online. We got an incredible roster of speakers and teachers. Uh, I'm a person of faith, so there's going to be some preaching on there, so some practical, actionable things that you can do. 
as you as you live out your faith as a leader of your organization, of your church, of your nonprofit in in uncharted spaces because we're all shifting and changing. So I want you to check that out, unchartedconference.online. That's unchartedconference.online. Okay, my guest today is Dr. William Putsis. He's a professor of marketing, economics, and business strategy at the Keenan Flagler Business School at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is also the president and CEO of Chestnut Hill Associates, a strategic consulting firm he founded in 1995. Additionally, Dr. Putsis co-founded Cadio Economics, a consulting firm that specializes in competitive strategy development and execution. He has worked with companies throughout the world, most recently developing strategies in China and Europe, as well as the United States. His consulting clients have included companies of all sizes, such as the Boeing Company, BASF, SAS, Morgan Stanley, Owens Corning, John Deere, and many others. Specializing in all aspects of business strategy, Dr. Putsis has also published over 30 scholarly articles in top academic journals, and he's the author of two books, Compete Smarter, Not Harder, which came out in 2014, and his most recent book, The Carrot and the Stick, Leveraging Strategic Control for Growth. Here's my conversation with Dr. William Putsis. Excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading Wild Green podcast by Dr. William Putsis. Thanks for being my guest today. Pierre, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. So take us back. What made you decide to do a PhD in economics? Like of all the fields of study, why did you go in that direction? This is going to be uh, uh, a, a not expected answer. Uh, and it, the, honest, the honest answer is I hated organic chemistry so much. I decided to major as an undergraduate in economics. Um, I was originally an undergraduate chemistry major. And anyone out there who listens who uh, has taken courses in organic chemistry will either appreciate or not what I'm about to say. But I hated organic chemistry so much that I had to find another major. And I took an intro economics course by the name, with the name of someone by the name of Philip Nelson, who's known for his work in information. And I was just so intrigued by it that I continued on to get my degree as an undergraduate in economics. And then I applied to graduate schools and happened to get into Cornell. And from there, the rest is history, I guess, is the thing. What do you feel are the secrets to, to teaching well in higher ed. I've read a couple of your reviews and what people say about you. And there's sometimes this, this wide dichotomy where in higher ed, it's like, I'm just trudging through and trying to get through this class and this professor is the worst. And then you have top tier, highly rated every year. You got to take this person's class. What do you, what do you think are foundationally the things that make the difference in uh, instructors in higher ed? Great, great question. So I, I, th- I think number one, above all else, is passion. You have to have a passion for what you do. Uh, it's funny, I'm just teaching now. I teach mostly in, in graduate programs, uh, executive MBAs, MBAs, but I once a year teach an undergraduate course, and uh, I, I was telling them that this is my hobby. Um, <laughs> and I, I really believe that, and they look at me like I'm really weird. Uh, but And maybe, maybe, maybe that's because I am in, in, in this regard. Uh, but I, I believe you have to absolutely have a passion for what you do. It has to be your habit. Your habit. I often say we're in the business of business. Mm. And so if we're in the business of business, it has to be something you live, breathe, 
Uh, I'm amazed sometimes when I when I interact with uh, graduate students, particularly in, in in business schools, who don't know things that are happening mm. out in the the you know Jack Welsh just passing away or yeah. things like that. Yeah. We're in business. This is what you you should eat, breathe, read everything, all consuming of what you do in business. I think that's number one. And number two, there was a thing that happened to me many years ago that has influenced me a great deal. There was a uh, he's now he's since passed away a and a strategy guru, he was up there with people like Michael Porter and Clay Christensen and others when he was alive. Someone by the name of Samantra Goshal. He was on the INSEAD faculty and a colleague of mine eventually uh, for a couple of years um, at London Business School. Hmm. And in London, hopefully this won't be too long into the story, cut me off if I go on too much. Uh, but he, um, he had um, a half an hour slot on BBC Two in London to talk about his experiences in leadership and management. And I remember watching 20 minutes into it, he's still talking about some walk in the woods in Fontainebleau, which is where INSEAD is located just outside of France. And I'm thinking while watching early on, I forget a Saturday or Sunday morning, uh, why is he going on about this silly story? I want to hear about leadership. <laughs> to this day, I remember the story and remember the point of the story. It was the story that resonated. And so I remembered the story, which then connected to the business. Hmm. the principles he was trying to espouse. So one of the things mm -hmm. I push really hard is I tell stories. And I always say stories are great, they may be fun, but then only stories if they don't connect to a business purpose. Hmm. So you have, if you have a lesson that starts with a story that then connects, quite often people only remember part of the story. And the second, second part of it is I think, um, I always remember it was um, um, one of my professors at Cornell, Keith Bryant, had always said, there's always three ways to explain, at least three ways to explain something. One of those three will resonate with everyone. Every single person will hear one of those and it will resonate. But usually it's not the same one of those three that resonates with each person. Yeah. And so I always find, I'll tell classes sometimes, I'm going to explain this three different ways. Pick which one you, tone it, tune out the other two. <laughs> uh, but remember the one that sticks. And I always think those things really are, are, are valuable. You, you mentioned London Business School. Now, what, what's the, the value of, I know we're talking about business primarily today, but across disciplines, and I know you interact with people from various industries. What's the value of experiencing life from a different worldview and from a different culture? And how can that have a significant impact on, on life and business and career? Oh, great, great question. Um, I, I would, I think the people out there listening, hopefully know the answer. I absolutely invaluable. I lived in London just six years. I lived in Sydney for a year, and those aren't exactly <laughs> diverse cultures from what we do. Um, unfortunately, sometimes in this country, we have that much of diversity. My son is living now in Quitman County in Clarksdale, Mississippi, um, one of the poorer counties in the mm -hmm. United States. And I'd say he's experiencing more diversity than I ever did in London or in Sydney. And so whether it be inside the United States or whether it be outside um, you know, I think I've traveled to every continent but one. Um, I do business in, in done business in the last few years in India, in China, in Europe, and in South America. And I, I don't think you. I mean, I often say I don't care if you have a hard, corner hardware store today. You're mm. competing in a global business because you compete against the Amazons and all the online uh, companies that are out there. And I don't think you can do anything anything well in business today be it local, be it an, as an entrepreneur, be it as a leader in a large company or a, a small startup, I don't think you can do it well without understanding all the diverse cultures. 
um, I'm going to go, this is like one of my great questions. It's one of my mm-hmm. big things out there. I, I don't think you can lead without understanding what other people go through. I ask my students often, um, how many of you can code? Um, Python, R, whatever it may be. Um, mm-hmm. I learned on Fortran, tells you how old I am. Um, but, I, and, and, you know, I'm surprised that even those in their 20s will, very few of them will raise their hand. And, I, I, you know, I, 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 there's a little bit off your original question, but I say, how can you lead people, many of whom will need to code for what they do mm. in the future world of AI and the additive manufacturing and the like, how can you lead them without understanding what they do? How can you lead diverse cultures, whether it be inside this country or people coming from abroad or managing teams that are increasingly global today? How can you do that without knowing and understanding the culture? What, what are some but organizational organizations have changed over the years and there is this sort of older perception that, you know, I, I sit in the corner, ivory tower, glass office. Uh, What do you mean by, uh, don't I have middle management people to check on the people below? What, what do you mean by getting there and understanding, you know, what people on the ground level or in different parts, especially if I'm in a global organization, what life is like for them? Why? Why do I have to do that? Can I just can I just job that off to somebody else? Yeah, you, you, one. So just I'll give you a great example to to that point. I uh, just had an email this morning and an email conversation just just uh, last night about something we're doing with a company. Uh, the plan is to do it in uh, April, and we have a week set aside towards the end of April in uh, in France. Normandy and Bordeaux, tough locations, I know, <laughs> um, and. Um, the senior leadership team are, are now planning for contingencies. What do we do when we have something like um, the coronavirus now disrupting plans? Is it safe for the people to go? As of now, we're on. Mm-hmm. But if all of a sudden what's, what people are experiencing in Italy now all of a sudden are being experienced in France, those plans may very well change because obviously the health and safety of the people are infinitely more important. Um, the CEO of the company will be on the ground. The senior leadership team will be on the ground. Um, interacting with those middle managers, you know, high potentials inside of that, um, in France to understand, and again, France isn't a, as diverse culture as in certain parts of the rest of the world, mm-hmm. um, but they will literally be leading their teams on the ground. Every single team, every single company that I work with is a global organization. The senior leaders have to be on the ground with the teams. You know, a lot of it's done virtually today, but they have to be on the ground leading the people who lead the people. The way I often describe it is years ago, um, it was um, John Pepper, who used to be CEO and chairman of Procter & Gamble, would talk about how he gets um, these long-winded reports from people and all he wants is the executive summary because he'll give his direct reports, the, the bigger picture uh, mm-hmm. and the bigger report so he can evaluate and then they'll eventually go down to the analyst and look at it. If he can't see the connection between all of that, there's no way he can see the one-page executive summary and understand what goes below it. Same thing mm-hmm. if you are leading your people who are indeed on the ground or even have middle management direct report inside those countries, you don't have an appreciation for what they go through without understanding the cultures. I've always found the best leaders in this organization I'm talking about in France, the senior leaders of um, led um, organizations in Japan, in China, uh, in Southeast Asia, more generally, and inside of Western Europe, and eventually here back to the United States. And I always find those are the best leaders to understand mm. global culture needs, to understand and appreciate culture, cult, cult, global cultures. 
we, we often talk about how much leadership dynamics have changed over the years, especially in the, the technological and innovation age that, that we live in now. And, and, and I'm old enough to, to remember uh, 28.8K dial up, you know, if somebody picks up the phone while you're trying to down, use the encyclopedia, the whole thing is off. Uh, and now we're in a, in a space where your phone is, you know, a, a private hotspot. What are some of the things about leadership that have not changed as the more we progress with technology and innovation and becoming global and really becoming flat? What are some of the things that just no matter how much time passes, they remain fixed about leadership? Oh, great question. It's funny. I thought you were going to ask about what's changed. And, <laughs> um, and, 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 and I think we all know what's changed. Everything is in our face all the time. It's funny. Uh, first, before I answer the question, Pierre, if you don't mind, uh, thank you for making me feel not so bad. Um, <laughs> I don't feel as old, given that you uh, remember remember that. Um, the um, It's funny, I remember being in Auckland, New Zealand, and landing at the airport, and there's a little, um, almost like a phone area where you can then plug in your jack, your computer, and after a long plane ride, I plugged in to download my emails to be able to answer offline. So I appreciate that. I, I, I believe really strongly, I'm going to give you a, an example related to this in a minute, and, and I'll credit Simon Sinek for his why. Mm-hmm. Um, the why. Mm-hmm. I go into organizations and I talk about with companies like Boeing, uh, Underwriters Laboratory are two good examples. They keep us safe. Boeing, I always said, the why you get up every day and come to work, and that's why the 7-3 Max has been such an issue. Mm-hmm. I was with the senior leadership team there um, a couple weeks ago. And, and, and their why, they come to work and are motivated, and every person they interact in that organization is earnest and they work hard because they keep us out of harm's way. Mm-hmm. And it's that why that motivates. If you don't have a why, if you're a leader and you don't instill in your people why they get up at 6 a.m. to come to work, why they work those extra hours, why they have to have work-life balance to support what they do. If you don't do that, if you don't have that why, why I come to work every day, you don't have the vision of what we're doing, that will never change. I, don't, I believe it's been, whether it be in, in, in battle, we have a great um, session that the organization called Battlefield Leadership does for us every year in Normandy and then in Gettysburg, and they use military examples mm. to talk about leadership. Um, so principles like vision, I think integrity, standing behind your word, um, supporting your people in a way that they know that, that you have their back, those things will never yeah. change. And if anything, I think to become more important in an age where it's really easy to hear things that aren't true or um, uh, you, you read so many conflicting things that those basic principles, and they're not just about leadership, I'd argue, it's about being a person and being, being someone true to what you do. I don't think those things will ever change. Speaking of why and the importance of why, why with everything that you have going on as a professor, as a consultant, just traveling around the world, you mentioned your son earlier. Why did you decide to write your book, The Carrot and the Stick? Uh, so, so, so I'm going to give you a little bit of background. I wrote a first book. It was called Compete Smarter, Not Harder. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the reason why I wrote that was that I, get, I, I do a lot of work both in terms of my academic research and work with companies. And so I kind of developed my, my own processes over, year, over, over, over time that – uh, is a very uh, uh, um, 
prioritized way of approaching business problems. So I often start, for example, as I go in to work with a company or try and understand an industry, is understand at the 30,000 feet view are those external business environment, uh, those things we can't control that we face the headwinds from, anything mm -hmm. from a coronavirus to trade policy, those things we own as a company uh, influence to why do we choose the markets we do, the market assessment, the size of the market, the growth, the profitability. Then I started to talk about things like the value chain. Okay, where in that value chain should we compete? When we decide where in that value chain to compete, what segments do we go after? Uh, all the way down to ultimately, what are those detailed tactics we do on the ground? So I started that and developing that process and developed in part with uh, uh, colleagues at Boeing and the best of academic research uh, and put together the process, and I would go out and I talk to companies about it. Sometimes we develop what I call boot camps, working with companies on the ground. Uh, we worked with anything from small startups to local businesses here in Chapel Hill, all the way to Fortune 10 companies, Fortune 100, and, and leading companies like Boeing, John Deere, BSF, and others. Uh, so I developed that process, and I'd go out and work with companies, and they said, well, where can we read more? Hmm. And I didn't have a place because it's mine. Mm -hmm. So I wrote the first book with that intent. My goal was to be able to say, well, here, uh, give me a call. I you know, like to tell companies if I can explain something from the book and I'm at my desk, like we're talking, I don't charge, just want to go out and work with you. Is one, one. So the goal would be to, and I would say what I do with companies, my goal to work with a company is that, is that you don't need me anymore. There's the old definition yeah. of a consultant is they want to, or the, the definition of consultant is they want to steal your watch and sell it back to you over mm -hmm. <laughs> and over, and over, and over again. Uh, to me, a success story is when I've instilled the principle inside the company that they can do it themselves, and they don't need me anymore. And the book, the first book, was a vehicle to, to help do that. So then I started to do that, and I'd go out and work with companies. And over the years, the two principles that have really resonated with companies, and they come up with me and say, okay, out of all this big process, or if I give a, you know, a keynote, they'll come up. One of the things... The two questions I kept getting, one in particular was about the, the carrot, but in particular the stick. People would come up to me after and say, that was really interesting. I want to apply to my business. My business. How do I do it? How do I find a process? Where can I read more? And I found myself once again, not being able to send them to anything that they can look at, read more and be able to do it themselves. So the carrot and the stick was written uh, to help companies managers, again, from a small business in Chapel Hill to a mm -hmm. uh, senior C-suite executive inside a large company to help them identify what I believe very strongly, and we have some really good statistical evidence that this is true, the two most principles in today's age that are driving profitability and success in the marketplace. So they can go back and, and read them, one, understand the principles, and then number two, actually have a how-to step to develop a strong strategic position inside of the core markets, and then eventually extend that to an ecosystem that develops not just a single product, but a platform hmm. of growth into future markets. So when I first came across your book, and, and I got the email about it, and I read the title, Carrot and Stick, I, I went to like agriculture i was thinking animals you know carrot is to coax the animal to move forward and the stick is okay if they don't take the carrot you kind of got to whoop them into the shape into shape what what made you adopt this predict particular vernacular and then define for us what you mean by carrot and stick great again great questions appreciate some of the, the the really nice setup to 
explain the, the basic premise. So I'm going to start with, the, go, if you don't mind, the second question and come back to the first. Yeah. Um, one of the things that working with companies I realized a long time ago, so my, my background with a PhD in economics, I work a lot with companies and I've worked a lot in terms of positions inside of universities and in the marketing area. So I kind of look at things from the lenses of both fundamental economics and theory, marketing and strategy. I'm kind of right in the middle of all of that. Um, and then as I started working with companies, I saw a couple of things that companies did really well. And the two things that I observed that companies who were successful did really well are the use of what I call strategic control points, which is the stick, and vertically aligned incentives, which is the carrot. So let me talk about that, each of those in turn in English, and then I'll talk about <laughs> why the title. Um, so, so the stick is the best one. The stick is an instrument that can be used inside of a market to leverage for extra margins and opportunity inside of uh, the current, current company and eventually extend it into other markets. Best explained by a couple of examples. Um, one is an older one, uh, and the second will be much more recent. So the first example is the example of soft soap, S-O-F-T, so mm -hmm. liquid soap we use to wash our hands. Yep. And um, the company actually started, it was a company called the Minnetonka Corporation in Minnesota. Uh, it was the early 1980s. The entrepreneur who started the company just unfortunately recently passed away. Um, but he had the idea for liquid soap. And he had a product that was successful in the upper Midwest. It was called Crane Bela Soap on Tap. It doesn't exactly roll off your tongue <laughs> like soft soap. <laughs> and um, it, it was successful in the small market up in Minnesota, but he wanted to go national with it. The problem with a company like that, if you're a small entrepreneur and you want to go national with a product, is you face ultimately the problem getting it on the shelf, you have to pay fees, it's called slotting allowances, mm -hmm. you have to guarantee performance if you don't hit specified stock level, uh, sales levels, you gotta compensate the retailer for not doing that, called failure fees, and it's expensive. Even if you overcome as a small entrepreneur all of that, the best you can hope for is to identify the category to the big players, the P&Gs, the Unilevers of the world, they see you, they come in, imitate you, spend lots of money uh, in the marketplace, to push you off the shelves, swamp <laughs> you with advertising and brand building, and you've identified a category for someone else to run with. So they figured if they had eight to 12 month window where they keep the big players out, they could get enough brand presence and shelf space to win the market, even with the big players in. Yeah. The question for them that they face is how do I keep the big players out? And so uh, they couldn't patent soap. The original patent for soap was, was issued, I believe, in 1902, long since expired. Um, actually have the document. It's kind of cool looking, the old um, actual printed uh, patent back from the uh, early 1900s. Oh. So, so the, the solution was how to keep the big players out for eight to 12 months. They went out and bought up the world's supply of pumps. Mm. Every factory that made the pumps, they sourced a year's supply. We did the nice. math not too long ago. It wasn't that expensive. And so if a, one of the big players were to come in, they'd have to wait to see them be successful go out and find a way to produce the soap. They'd have to build a factory for pumps, and that whole process took about a year. So they kept the big players out for 12 months. Eventually, the Unilevers, Johnson, John, Johnson, and Colgate Kamals came in, but it was a year later, they already had a substantial presence in the marketplace. A year after the big players came in, Colgate Kamala bought them out for, I believe, $1.7 billion. That's how you become a billionaire. Hmm. The pumps were a point of strategic control. That's the stick. Every market, you try and find that. Not every market has one, but to the extent you can do that, you can now leverage it for strength in your market. In this case, the stick wasn't in their market. 
They're not in the pump business. They're in the soap business. Mm-hmm. That's example number one, a little bit older one. Much more recent one um, uh, is uh, back about two years ago, I gave a talk in, talk in Miami, and the CEO of the second largest insurance company in Latin America came up to me after, I actually just saw him recently again in Miami back in October. And he said, I, I often talk about Google Alphabet. And mm-hmm. he said, you know, I hate Google. And I said, well, that's a pretty strong statement. Why is it that you <laughs> hate Google? He said, because they're extorting money out of me. And I said, well, can you tell me more? He says, yes. They know in, the, in his home country, it turns out in his home country um, worldwide, 85% of the operating systems on phones have the Android platform in it. Mm-hmm. You combine that with Google Maps and Waze owned by Alphabet, those three have over 95% in his home, the main city in his home country had one of those or all of those on their, his or her phones. He said they know that driver A drives too fast, about 10 miles an average over the speed limit. Driver B travels too close to the car in front of, front of, front of them. Driver C is a safe driver, and they want to sell me that information so I can do a better job charging more for those unsafe drivers out there. And um, worse yet, if I don't pay up, they threaten to sell that information to my rival. Uh, and so they're extorting me. I don't have a choice but to pay up. Now, Google Alphabet isn't in the insurance business. Mm-hmm. They're in the information and in other businesses. But they're now extracting margin out of the insurance business and forcing him to pay up in that, in that industry. The information that comes off our phones are, is an example of another strategic control point. That's the stick. And the problem for many entrepreneurs and leaders out there is the big companies, the Alphabets, the Amazons, the uh, Alibabas, the Baidus of the world, use these these strategic control points effectively to gain market share, and everyone else is left outside. We need to understand how they build those strengths, number one. And number two, we need to understand how we develop for it in our own markets as well. So that's a long-winded explanation to the stick. So, so what's, what's the, uh, the advice you have for the, the emerging entrepreneur, the individual that's not a part of the huge, a huge machine or doesn't have a huge a framework or system on how to best identify you know, what their, the stick in their niche or area is? No, great. Another great question. So two things. Um, first, I'm going to quote someone by the name of Jay Parkinson, who's a serial entrepreneur of some note. He's had a number of successful exits. Um, he started a company called Sherpa.com. I write about this in the book. Um, I asked him the same advice, uh, for the same advice, uh, Pierre, you just, uh, you just asked me, and I'm going to quote him of what he said, because I think it's really good advice. He said, buy a whiteboard. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> buy a whiteboard. I love it. Get it out. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and so start at the beginning of where you start up your business all the way to the end. He said, follow the money. So where does the money go? And he, he eventually in this business followed the money. Buy a whiteboard and sketch out your industry. Step back and look at it. And in the book, I talk about that. And I talk about how you would take what, what I call the value chain. It's very different than other notions of a value chain. But take your value chain and walk through the industry and think about parts of that industry that may be what I call rivalrous. That is, if you can own part of it, someone else doesn't. If someone else owns it, you can't. And if you're in that industry, finding those points of rivalry could be strong or weak points of strategic control sometimes become apparent. What I often like to say when I work with companies is if you can't find a really strong reason for uh, extra or supernormal margin somewhere in that value chain or a point of strategic control, why are you in this industry? Hmm. 
I often get startup pitches from companies that are just starting companies, entrepreneurs, scientists. Some people are absolutely brilliant of working with a startup now up in, up in Toronto. And I work with these companies, and they're, some of these people are absolutely brilliant from a science perspective. And they say, but then I try to understand what's their point of strategic control, what's the differentiator in the market. And it's uh, Roger Martin up in Toronto that always says differentiated. Different doesn't mean differentiated. Different is different. Differentiated is different in a way uh, that consumers are willing to pay or customers are willing to pay for it, of which we can extract some. And so I would say what's different doesn't mean customers are going to want to buy it. Why is it different in a way that you can get extra margin from your customers and they get something in return? It's a win-win. So the long-winded answer to that fear is to buy a whiteboard, sketch it out, follow the first half of what I talk about in the book of finding those points of strategic control. If there are none, and you can't find a way to get those extra margins that your customer wants, question whether or not you really should be in the business you're in. This is where we enter a plug for your custom whiteboard uh, <laughs> product. <laughs> so, so you, you, you frame for us, uh, one part of it, but what about the, the carrot part? Can you, can you walk us through the framework of how th- there's different stakeholders, different groups we got to pay attention to, not just us as the organization, but other people who really can make or break our success in business. Yeah. Thank you for letting me get back to the, to the second one after my long winded answer on the first one. So, so I argue the stick is most important. So you can, you can, the stick is often not there. The, the, the strategic control points are industry based. Mm -hmm. Um, The vertically aligned incentives, the carrot is something we can create. Mm. Uh, And I'll, I'll again, illustrate it through an example. I love examples because they illustrate the points and you can Mm -hmm. start to hopefully bring it back to, to your listeners own home industries. The, the best example is when Procter & Gamble many years ago was trying to develop a relationship with Walmart. Walmart was doing in some categories as much as one-third of their business. And this is before we had the sophisticated scanner systems. This is in the early 90s. Uh, in the, what, what, they, what Procter & Gamble did is they went to Walmart and said, what we, Procter & Gamble, would like to do for you, Walmart, is we'd like to help you and develop jointly an inventory control system for all of your stores. Yeah. What we will do is we'll show up, instead of going to a warehouse where you then have to distribute to your stores, we'll show up just in time in the loading dock when the pre-specified stock level at each of those stores go below uh, whatever you determine is the right amount to have in those stores. And so the advantage to you, Walmart, is since you'll have much leaner inventory since we're showing up just in time based on the scanning information we get from your stores mm-hmm. is you Walmart will save your inventory holding costs by 60, 60%. Now a little bit of background, some people out there, if they're in, in retailing, uh, will listen to this and say, well, Walmart doesn't hold any inventory. Today, Walmart holds no inventory. It's basically any large retailers, a consignment store title goes from the manufacturer to you and I, when we buy it, as it goes through the scanner. But back in the early nineties, they held inventory. Mm-hmm. So here was one of their major suppliers saying, we're going to adjust our control system so that you can reduce your inventory holding costs on our products by 60%, but it's proprietary to us. Mm-hmm. So here's the, here's the kicker in the carrot. Think about what that does to the incentive structure for Walmart. Walmart now has a lower cost of doing business 
when they sell a Procter & Gamble product on the shelves. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, significantly lower because they have a 60% lower inventory holding cost on Procter & Gamble products. Whereas for Unilever, Colgate, Palmolive, they have the, the much higher cost. So if you're, if you're Walmart, what do you want to do? You want to sell P&G products. You want to sell Absolutely. P&G products. You want the Unilever products on the back shelf where no one can see them. Exaggerating a little bit. But the idea here is that you now change the incentive structure of one of your major suppliers by changing the inventory system that you interact with them on. Now, to illustrate why this is so important, it was a guy, who's was a CEO of a company called Aviol I interacted with about two years ago in January, since moved on to another company, but I told him the story. And he goes, mm-hmm. that's why that was going on. He was the head of Walmart supply chain, and I didn't know it at the time when I told him this story. He was the head of Walmart supply chain back in the 1990s, and he was getting dictate from Bentonville Walmart's world headquarters that P&G takes priority in every truck. Anything we do, Walmart, uh, P&G products take priority. And he didn't know until two years ago why he was getting that dictated in the 1990s. <laughs> That's how powerful it can be. So it doesn't – and by the way, two, two points really important about both this, the carrot, the aligned incentives. You've now aligned Walmart to your interests. Mm-hmm. These things are all fleeting. They're temporary. A strategic control point isn't forever. Vertically aligned incentive isn't forever. What would happen when this is in place, and it did throughout the decade of the 1990s, is all P&G's competitors were trying to break into the system to do the same thing. And actually, I asked this to John Pepper, the CEO of Procter & Gamble at the time, is, aren't you worried about that? And he says, yes. While they're fighting to get into Walmart, we're launching it into Target. When they try and launch it into Target, we're going to CVS and Safeways of the world. And they stayed one step ahead. Mm. So the goal, both with aligned incentives like this, the goal with strategic control points, the carrot and the stick, is to find those pockets where we can get an advantage in the market, let the competitors try and break in, keep them at bay as long as possible, and while they're trying to do that, we move to the next market opportunity, and we stay one step ahead. It's the opportunities that we now have that we can do that, and sometimes they can last two, three, four, five years that gives us a huge strategic advantage. So vertically aligned incentives can take on many forms. Oliver Williamson, who won a Nobel Prize in economics, called the joint investment asset-specific, asset-specificity. It's a fancy term, helped them win a Nobel Prize. It's a fancy term for a joint investment in something that aligns the incentives of the two parties. It needs to be sticky. It can be done on a local level. A business can invest with a chamber of commerce in something that aligns bringing people downtown to make both parties win. Um, beverage industries do it with with distributorships that align their interests. There are many ways to do it, but the idea is trying to find throughout that value chain a way, i.e. a carrot, that the incentives of everyone throughout are aligned with yours and have a stick that you are the only one that can provide a certain key component that's important to your customers. To give you some illustration, hopefully I'm not going on too long on this, but I am, like you asked about. Yeah, you're good. Jing, I'm passionate about this. <laughs> the, the, when you bring the two together, we did, again, this is for S&P 500, so large companies uh, in the U.S. I suspect it will trickle down, but we don't have evidence, evidence yet. We're starting to look at small startups to see if the same thing applies. But in the S&P 500, over an eight-year period, those that did well on strategic control and vertically aligned incentives had more than doubled their earnings over that mm-hmm. seven-year period. Wow. Those that did poorly on both actually had an earnings decline. 
We use regression analysis to, to, to bolster it, but there is material evidence for at least large companies inside the S&P 500 over an eight-year period ending in 2016 that companies that do well on both the carrot and the stick have material better financial performance. And although I don't have the, the same detailed data to support it, my suspicion is it's all the more important for small companies and for startups and for entrepreneurs because if you don't have that critical advantage when you're starting, uh, it is exceedingly difficult in today's world to do well when you're fighting against the alphabets, the Amazons of the world. And that may be way more than you wanted, but uh, no, I, uh, I'm passionate about this. this. This is good. And if we can get part of an executive MBA in 10 minutes of you talking, it, <laughs> it, it works. So let's, let's kind of break this down into uh, a case study or analysis of sorts or consultancy of sorts. Uh, I, I grew up in a town uh, close to about 25, 30 minutes north of Detroit, where in the 90s, I believe, Walmart came to town. And it was one of those things where Walmart came to town and kind of wiped out a lot of different smaller businesses. So this is so I live in Flint, by the way. So I know that okay. area Pontiac. in the early '90s, as a matter of fact. So grew up Starting in Pontiac. Yeah. No, yeah. no, I grew up in Pontiac, so not not too far from Flint. And sometime later, years later, I don't know how many years. I can't remember recall specifically. Uh, the Walmart that was in Pontiac left and moved to I think it was Auburn Hills. Uh, and it just kind of left sort of a warehouse, an empty side of town. The traffic died down. If I had been maybe a local hardware store that was around when Walmart first came to town, what would have been some of the things that I could have done to, to survive, uh, you know, in terms of positioning myself, in terms of relating to the environment? What were some of the things that I could have done so I wasn't wiped out by the whole Walmart phenomenon when it was going on? Oh, great, great, great question. I, I, I wish we had two hours to talk about, not just the economics and the strategy, but all the social implications, which is a whole separate part of this. Um, so I'll give you two counterexamples. In the book I talk about, um, uh, we talked a bit earlier about um, Wilmington, North Carolina, and the house halfway between Wilmington, North Myrtle, and the town of Holden Beach. And I joke about, uh, kind of joke a little bit in the book about there being a true value hardware store in, I call it the booming town of Shalote, North Carolina, <laughs> Old Beach. Shalote is a pretty big town. Um, love the area, really nice part of the country. Um, but the true value faces the, the Home Depot and the Lowe's that entered in the last 20 years, as well as a Walmart in town. And I often say, I call it the signs are the signs. As mm. soon as you see a two-for-one or sales special, you know the company's the business is in trouble, which we saw in this uh, true value, which eventually went under. Um, I want to I contrast that, that experience um, with, a, with a local book, bookstore in Madison, Connecticut, R.J. Julia. Um, R.J. Julia faces the, the big giant Barnes & Nobles, the mall, and there's one in near, out, just outside of New Haven and one just mm -hmm. outside in New London. Um, they bring in authors for small little talks. They have Willoughby's, a coffee shop right next to it. Everyone views R.J. Julia's in, in um, the uh, Willoughby's coffee shop as next to it as a destination. I believe mm. really strongly we're having a bifurcation in retailing. And I think local retailers who are fighting against an Amazon, a, um, a, a Walmart, a um, True Value, I mean, excuse me, a Home Depot, 
in that local area. They really need to understand that they cannot compete with those larger retailers on scale. The cost structure will always be lower. Uh, the problem is that they try and compete on cost. Becoming part of the local community mm. so that people want to go there uh, and not just go there but spend some money because they have to, uh, but, uh, but because they want to, mm-hmm. is a really good strategy. RJ Julia has been extremely successful. And the bifurcation is going to be, say, for example, in book retailing. We're going to see the Amazons, Barnes & Nobles, now Barnes & Noble recently gone private. Um, they will go the way of borders. It's pretty obvious to me. Um, but we will see the small, the rise of the small independent bookseller. We're going to see the rise of the small little independent um, hardware stores to compete. Uh, the problem that we face is I think that is much truer in affluent areas like Connecticut, mm-hmm. uh, in this case, in Madison, Connecticut. Um, I have you mentioned um, uh, Michigan. I have a friend in, um, in Dearborn mm-hmm. who always goes to his local Ace Hardware store because they'll deliver if he needs to. He call them up. They know him. Um, it's much tougher in a Flint. It's much tougher in a Pontiac that as GM has left, mm-hmm. communities are less able. My fear is, is a little different than, than the premise of the question. My fear is less that, that the local hardware store can't compete because I think they can if they do a local hardware, a bookstore, grocery store, whatever it may be. My fear is that the big player comes in, the dollar stores, the, mm-hmm. the Walmarts, and that local retail that can't compete on cost in the lower income neighborhoods and they leave. And then because the large Walmarts, the dollar stores, aren't making money in the local communities, they also leave. Yeah. My son's in Clarksdale, Mississippi, and there isn't even a dollar store. So mm-hmm. for people, they have to travel. And so all of a sudden you end up with um, inequity in the access to not just lower price goods, but goods at all. That's my bigger fear. And that's, again, I'm starting to get into a whole bunch of social concerns, which is different than the economic concerns. I believe really strongly they can compete, but they have to compete in a different dimension. Um, To give you one quick, and I'm going off a little bit too much, and I'll I'll stop in a second, but there's just, this is is so much here to to think about. We know, for example, the way companies for game theory work that's done, the way you Mm -hmm. avoid a price war is not compete on price. Mm. You compete on something else. I wish we had so. so hopefully so, that that's, that's not too long winded. <laughs> no, I wish we had so, so much time to to unpack um, be, be, because it it is all, all working together. But I got to get back to this question I asked you before. Why did you pick the, the particular vernacular for the title? Why did you choose carrot and stick, even with um, some of the more mainstream or historical connotations related to hearing carrot and stick? Why did you go in that direction? Yeah, I appreciate you coming back to the question that I didn't answer. Thank you. Uh, so I believe just mainly because, and by the way, so we choose the title, I mean, the subtitle, Leveraging Strategic Control for Growth on Purpose. So hopefully people would see the bigger title and then know it's business and not agriculture, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. But because I believe you need to do both in business today. Good companies find a way to find a, a stick to incentivize and require their service, their product, in used in that value chain. But if you don't incentivize people, your customers, your end users to come to your product, you do it only with a stick and people resent you. Uh, you look at taxi cabs. Mm-hmm. Why do taxi cabs go the way that they have in terms of Uber and, and Lyft? Because they didn't provide, they, they, had, they only had a stick. They had the medallions, the license. 
they didn't incentivize you to, 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 to come to them. So the use of the carrot, i.e. the incentive structure, making people want to do business with you, making it easier, and the stick, which means you're the only one, the only game in town, it's both of them. People go to Amazon not because they're, they're the only game in town they have that stick, but because they have lower prices and better selection. You mm-hmm. have to do both. Mm-hmm. And so the hope is that the carrot and the stick represents a really succinct way of thinking about markets that is indeed effective, and hopefully it communicates that point quickly. So why should we pick up this book? I know some people are intrigued by our conversation, and they say, oh, I, I can't take a class at UNC, or you know, we couldn't bring in this organization for consulting, uh, or you know, we can't even watch enough YouTube videos to get a grasp of this thing. Why, why is this book... Uh, the right move for for people to pick up if they're looking to learn more? I'll give you the most important answer first, and that is because every single company out there, large and small, especially small, especially startups are competing with an Amazon, with a um, and, and, and Alibaba if you're in another country, competing yeah. with Netflix or competing with Home Depot or Lowe's, and all of those organizations almost all of them, if not all of them, who have been successful have a very strong stick. And then they use the principle of vertical alignment really well. If you don't break into either of those, find a way to align the incentives and find your own strategic control point, it's almost impossible for you to compete against the large players on an ongoing basis. And the book, in the first half of the book, talks about how you compete, number one. Number two, if you're thinking about policy, you understand how this is in the first place. So that's the big number one. If you're going to compete successfully in this market, Oh, were we back on? Yeah, I have, I have no idea what I think happened. we... You still there? Can you hear me? No, sorry about that. Not sure what happened. N- not a problem. If it's you could a little... Is it... Connection's a little fuzzy. Yeah, so is, so is mine. I'm not quite sure what the problem is. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Yep, dropped off again, I think. Are you Are you still there? I am here, I, and I can hear you. Okay. I wonder if okay. I, I'm going to try and stop the video. Sometimes the video um, will uh, make it. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. I can hear you fine. Yeah. Sometimes the video gets in the way. So if we maybe we, I don't know where you, what you would like to do to to wrap to kind of put an end to that. And I don't know where where we dropped off. Yeah. If you could just um, go go back to talking about we were just talking about why uh, people should pick up a copy of the book. And then we'll we'll just close after that. Okay. All right. I appreciate that. So 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 the, I'd argue, Pierre, there there are the main reason why someone should think about buying the book and go out and particularly read um, what the book can do for their businesses is that everyone competing in the world today is competing against in one form or another a larger player a, a Google slash Alphabet an Amazon a Home Depot a Lowe's. Uh, a Barnes and Noble, someone who's able to get the scale and and or 
own a point of strategic control in the marketplace. Virtually every successful company out there has found a point of strategic control and finds a way to align incentives throughout their industries and throughout their value chain. And so if you're a small entrepreneur, if you're a startup, if you're a medium-sized company, if you're a local business, no matter who you are, you're competing in some sense against a larger company. And, and so if you're going to understand how to compete effectively in such a world, you need to find a source of strategic control and a way to align incentives across your individual markets. And the first part of the book walks you through literally a step-by-step -step process for how you do that. It talks about what a point of strategic control is. How do you identify one? Uh, how would you develop one if you don't have one? And the second part of the book then says, how do we have a longer vision? What industries are most attractive as we move from a standalone product to an ecosystem? And the idea is as we move to adjacent markets from our core, we want to do it in a way that develops opportunities that is not just about a single market, but multiple market opportunities. So the short answer, Pierre, is that the book really walks through a step-by-step -step process about how you develop your own points of strategic control, i.e. your own stick, your own vertically aligned incentives, i.e. your own carrot, in a step-by-step -step fashion so that when you're competing against a larger entity and almost everyone in this country is in one form or another, you're able to do it with a process in hand. I, I call this portion of the podcast shameless plug time. <laughs> so in, get, what's the URLs? How can we keep up with the book in terms of social media connections? How can we keep up with you and follow up on your work? What are some, some of the best ways to stay in contact with you? Uh, I love it. It's an easy one. If you can remember my last name, the best place, and I appreciate the, the shameless plug, it's putsis.com, P-U-T-S-I-S. Is the hardest part to remember, and I always tell people it's put, uh, as in you know the word put something over there, and cyst as in your sister put cyst .com. Um, There's a link to the book. You can go on Amazon and just search my last name, and the book will come up straight away. Um, and hopefully, uh, by the way, and there's also contact information. Um, I'm, I love emails. Not trying to charge or drum them. Build on business. I love talking with people about this. I'm passionate about it. Um, either search my name on Amazon to buy the book or go to putsis.com. I have blogs, um, all different stuff that people can read if, uh, if it's of interest. My guest today has been Dr. William Putsis, author of The Carrot and the Stick, Leveraging Strategic Control for Growth. Thanks for hanging out with me for a few minutes today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Pierre. Um, uh, appreciate the time. Great conversation with Dr. William Putsis about his book, The Carrot and the Stick, Leveraging Strategic Control for Growth. And I'll put some links in the show notes so that you can follow up on Dr. Putsis and his work. I really want you to get a copy of his book and, and share in the lessons that he reveals about life and about leadership and about strategy, about how you can lead in a different way. And especially during these times where we need a new strategy for leadership. Hey, that's all I have for this episode of the Leading While Green podcast. You know it's my mission to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.